Coming up next, by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. Welcome to another spooky episode. We played, uh, what's that thing called? We played Takata and Fugue in D minor last week. This week we did Saint Sans, or how do you say that guy's name? Probably Saint Sans. Saint Sans? I, I don't know. Saint Sans. Saint Sans? Saint Sans. Saint Sans, his Dance Macabre, one of the great, the other great Halloween piece. I would argue those are the two great Halloween pieces of music. Uh, some people would argue for night on bald mountain or whatever the thing is from fantasia where the devil comes out of the mountain people like that one but i don't know i think really the two great themes that have entered into the horror lexicon from from classical music are to in fugue and day major of course and dance macabre by what do you think about that jake what's your favorite horror related orchestral piece I don't have an opinion about that, Nathan. And yet, you're the pastor who's a master of bleeding. Jake Mentz killer. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I like to do my killing uh, to silence. You like to just do your killing to stony silence. Wow. <laughs> uh. things, things took a turn for the dark. This is for the macabre in our already creepy Halloween episode. What do you like to kill in silence? <laughs> a little time playing video games? I'm not saying another word. You're not saying another word? <laughs> All right, well, this is going to be an interesting podcast. I guess it's just you and me, Brandon Chastfiend, hey. scholar who's a baller. Or no, mauler. Mauler of bleeding. And when we say mauler, we do not mean that other classical composer who goes by the name of mauler. We mean mauler like you maul things. What do you like to maul, Brandon? Things. Follow-up <laughs> question. Do you maul in silence or do you have a soundtrack of some type? I'm usually growling. <laughs> <laughs> Do you actually grab and maul these things with your teeth? Yeah. What are you talking about? Cats? Dogs? Oh, various things. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like the beginning of a children's book. <laughs> Cats? Dogs? Oh, various things. All the things that I can maul. <laughs> All the things. Oh, the things you can maul. The things you Everything, can maul. both great and <laughs> small. <laughs> a cat. A dog. <laughs> a goat. A hog. A bat. A mouse. In or out of the house. <laughs> oh, you can maul both far and near. Mallworthy things are everywhere. <laughs> you maul and maul and maul some more. <laughs> Unless you do your life's a uh, bore. <laughs> and so you maul until the end. Until all that's left to maul is your very best friend. <laughs> <laughs> and should you maul him? I can't say. Maul him. Maul him. Right away. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, yes! <laughs> Welcome to the bookening, folks! 
our creepiest ep- I think this officially is our creepiest episode yet. I am, of course, Nathan Alverson, your humble and obedient ghost. Uh, welcome to the booking, folks. We're getting, this is part two of uh, Something Wicked This Way Comes, the episode wherein we talk about it, that is. All right, let's do some spooky. In your spookiest voice, Brandon, let's do some donor. Scream outs. Scream outs. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Donors. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're yeah. <laughs> trying to clear my throat. All right. Can you do a scream sound effect, Jake, after every one of Brandon's spookily intoned names? Like, ah! <laughs> yeah, exactly. That'll be perfect. All right. Here we go. All right. Our first spooky donor <laughs> shout, scream out goes to Beth. Beth. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Our second spooky donor scream out goes to the lovebirds, Eric and Catherine. The lovebirds, Eric and Catherine. Oh! <laughs> Someone just got an axe buried in their thigh or something. What a weird sound. Ooh, yes, the, the diabolical Mr. X. Mr. X. Ah! <laughs> Pterodactyl just flew through here. <laughs> Strangest thing. It's <laughs> one of my tattoos. It's one of your tattoos. Your tattoo. Did you get John in? Oh, and John, and as she has requested, Jill. John and Jill. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> what was that? I tried to get my voice to crack and then I can't do it. I'm not Brandon. Brandon's the one that voice cracks every time he yells. And of course, Rhonda and Robert. Rhonda and Robert. Ah! (laughs) (laughs) Never more. You guys ready to talk about uh, something like this? It comes a little bit more. Do it. What's that sound? It's the scare plane going over. (laughs) (laughs) I'm terrified. Uh, This is time for gaggage check. I feel like we need a good uh, Halloween pun for this, but I don't know. What kind of baggage did you guys bring to this book? Jake? We already talked a little bit about my read of Fahrenheit 451. I wasn't a huge fan. Listened to it on audiobook. Commuting to and from Indianapolis in the wee hours of the morning. And so there's that, this sense that he's kind of like maybe a little overwrought, a little cheesy and kind Which of you completely kind of got just from Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, basically. but then there's also, I have I guess the short story that, that really sticks or has stuck in my mind or stayed with me is, what's it called? You told me I should tweet it for the bookening. And, uh, yeah, I the, did. The bookening yeah. did tweet it out uh, this during the eclipse recently. It happened recently. Yeah, it, it had been on my mind all day during the eclipse. And I said, hey, you should you should send this out. It's about the little girl in the on the planet where the sun only comes out. Yeah, what's it called? For like... Like one day every six or seven or 30 yeah, or 50 or 100 years. I don't even remember. It comes out every five or six a years day, on this a, planet. Rem- I don't know. The day in the sun. I mean, I guess I could just look at it on Twitter. The day. 
something in a day. Yeah. All sunshine in a day or all all summer in a day. All summer in a day, yep. All summer in a day. Every seven years, I think, in that story, five years, maybe the sun comes out for five minutes. And other than that, this planet is submerged in rain and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and this girl who's from Earth and who's seen the sun but hasn't seen it for a long time is describing it. And everybody thinks that she's crazy. It couldn't possibly be that glorious. And they make fun of her. They lock her in a closet. And then they forget about her because the sun comes out. They all run out and they play, and then the rain starts raining again, and and they all sort of stare at each other and realize, oh, yeah, it's a really brutal story. It's like a page long or something, but it's it's just like Bradbury. Why? Yeah, it stuck with me. Yeah, you know, I you know I had that too, that reality that that had made a strong impression and it stuck with me, meant something. So that's really all I all I brought to something wicked this way comes. Truth is, I wasn't even sure that this was a novel that was designed to be a novel because so much of what I know of Bradbury is short stories mm. and, or short stories that were... Yeah, like the Martian Chronicles is really yeah. just a, it's a novel, quote unquote, but it's really just but a it was really of short a stories, collection yeah. of short stories that were stuck together and given some overarching themes and interstitial parts that sort of like made it cohesive or whatever. I didn't know that this wasn't that. So I, I wasn't expecting what I got and I was very pleasantly surprised. Spoilers. I mean, I wasn't I wasn't expecting it to be bad because I knew that you loved it. I knew that other people whose opinion I respect really loved it. So I was pretty taken with it pretty quickly. But we'll I guess we'll talk about that later. We shall. Brennan, your baggage soon? I don't have much baggage with Bradbury. I hadn't read much Bradbury. I read Fahrenheit four fifty one. Had mixed feelings about the book. Came to this expecting it to be overwrought and cheesy but i won't spoil anything all right we're gonna find out whether brandon did in fact yeah i mean i I hadn't i guess given my upbringing i didn't read a whole lot of bradbury i don't know why i never came across him or was required to read him i never read for fahrenheit 451 in high school i was never required to never had a teacher tell me that they liked it and made me read it so the first time i read him i was in college in graduate school actually so he was just never an author that i even it's not that i avoided reading him it's just i never wanted to read him or had any reason to (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you stayed away from him. Yeah. Turned up your nose at him. But you never avoided him. Uh, yeah, it's not like it was, it wasn't even turning my nose up at him. It was just, he never came across my path. Yeah, he just, he, was, he wasn't on your Sci-fi, radar. man. Sci-fi yeah. wasn't your thing. Sci-fi yeah. wasn't my thing. That's yeah. right. Who here has sought out Isaac Asimov? Not me. Not me. I had an Isaac Asimov novel given to me at one point, and I think I might have tried to read it, but I can't even remember what the name was. Didn't care. Fun fact, on Halloween, he's called Dysic. <laughs> As a monster. I went too far. (laughs) Oh, it's another ghost. (laughs) Uh, My bag. Nathan, what was your baggage, my friend? Uh, Or my fiend? Well, I'm glad you asked, Nathan. I discovered Bradbury pretty early. I I think in my early tweens, as I believe they call it now, I discovered Bradbury. I remember Fahrenheit 451 being a very annoying book that like I said, in the church, in the, you know, school library and teachers said they liked it kind of thing. And I just like resented it for that reason. Finally read it and I actually did kind of like it. And then I read some of his early fiction. I read a collection called, I believe, The Illustrated Man, a collection called The October Country, another collection. And Ray Bradbury's early fiction was great. A much better way to discover some of these horror tropes than Jake's uh, uh, experience that he's discussed of reading Goosebumps. If Goosebumps. I may, if I may be insulting to your Goosebumps. Ray- Bradbury ultralight. Right, <laughs> exactly. But a lot of Bradbury's early stories have these really uh, strong 
horror premises that are just real fun when you come across them for the first time, especially if you read them early enough that you haven't like watched a million horror movies or watched a bunch of The Twilight Zone, so you're coming across some of this stuff for the first time. He has one called The Scythe, I believe it is, about a guy that becomes a farmer, and he realizes as he cuts the wheat that he's actually harvesting souls, that he's actually taking the job of death. His wife, he realizes he comes across the pieces of wheat that are his wife and his child, and he has to decide whether to cut them. I have no idea. I don't remember whether he does or not, but I certainly remember the premise. I remember, it's how it is with a lot of these kinds of stories. You, you don't really remember. Like me and Jake were just talking about some Twilight Zones today, and it's like, the premise is great. The twist and where it goes is dumb, and who cares? But just yeah. the, uh, you were talking about the one where the guy... It's the very first episode of the Twilight Zone because I just picked up season one and I've watched a handful of the very first episodes of the first season. The very first one, a guy is like all alone. He keeps being in these places where he feels like people are just around the corner and you know he sees a smoking cigar or whatever and things are happening things are cooking on the grill or whatever and he, but he's absolutely alone and he doesn't remember how he got there and he doesn't remember what his name is or anything about himself and he's just confused and lost and alone and the sense of loneliness and isolation grows and grows and grows and mounts and mounts and mounts and all of that's just really well done and then the twist at the end is he's in a spaceship simulator thing and he's been there for like six months and he f- he's finally going crazy and you get this exposition of we figured out how to compensate for man's need for oxygen and man's need for food and but we haven't figured out how to compensate for man's need of companionship Yay. you know or something like that which isn't even a really bad twist but it's still like the setup is way better like you'll always yeah, remember it, the setup. well it's of- a ch- it's a cheap twist because it's i think those kinds of like and it was all a dream or all a hallucination yeah. is just a really a good twist. cheap like, twist if the twist is the point. But in at least that episode for for me and in, in, in a lot of the stories that you're talking about, the twist, at cares. least for us as readers, it doesn't matter. It's not really the point. You almost resent the twist because what's fun is the unknown. You know, I, re- I remember actually when you're telling me about that episode, I remembered it, but I didn't remember the twist. I just remembered that weird, creepy sense of isolation of, of coming into a room and there's a cigarette still going and there's music maybe playing on the jukebox and the diner, but yeah, no and one's the, there. he's always feeling like there's something around the corner but and never is. Yeah, and then he begins to be afraid that there's this malevolent presence around the corner that's kind of after him him. and toying with him and it drives him crazy and there's no twist that that, that's not a great twist it's maybe not the worst twist there's no twist that could live up to that right nightmarish premise i mean there's just what could you where could you go with that but what a great so anyway that's that's how a lot of the bradbury stories are i remember one called small assassin which is about a a woman that's having a baby and she becomes convinced that the baby is malevolent and wants to kill her and then the baby is born and it's just it's just an evil baby story but it's it's the first evil baby story I remember reading and it's quite a good evil baby story because it's just this woman and she knows the baby is evil she knows it's after her but of course her husband doesn't believe her her doctors don't believe you know everybody's like it's an adorable baby and then the baby's like crawling around turning on the gas so that you know her house is trying to kill her off so <laughs> it's a great story the crowd about a guy that witnesses an auto accident and then this crowd gathers around to seeing see, see the dying man and then the guy starts to go to different fatalities and accidents on the side of the road and he realizes that the same crowd of people is showing up and I don't remember what happens in that story but I sure remember that it's just a creepy weird prevalence uh the skeleton about a guy that realizes that there's a creepy skeleton inside of him and wants to get it out don't remember <laughs> what happens to that guy but <laughs> I remember <laughs> This is a creepy skeleton inside of you, Nathan. There's a creepy skeleton inside all of us. Uh, 
Jake, and uh, I know how to get it out. <laughs> Apparently, you do too, but we have to be very silent. Um, there's a great, if you want to see the best visual adaptation of, of uh, Ray Bradbury, watch the Alfred Hitchcock Presents called The Jar. I won't tell you anything about it. It's just a good story, and it's a good adaptation, better than any of the Twilight Zones. Better than the one Twilight Zone, actually, that was written. That was uh, based on Ray Bradbury. So I discovered Bradbury Young. I read Something Wicked This Way Comes without knowing anything about it. My mom brought it home from the library to read it for herself because she liked Ray Bradbury. She really loves uh, Fahrenheit 451. And I, so I just picked it up. I think I told you guys I had a similar experience with East of Eden where I just didn't know what it was. And then it blew me away. Something Wicked was very much a book that I read at the exact right age. And it was really powerful, really marked me. There's a lot of stuff in reading it again that I didn't realize it had been so influential, just stuff that had seeped into my subconscious that had come out in different ways over the, you know, almost 20 years since I first read the book. There's stuff that Jake pointed out to me of Nathanic things that he knows or has seen over the years. He's like, yeah, you got this from this book, didn't you? Yeah, I guess so, but I didn't realize it. You know, I never would have said I was consciously aping or looking to something wicked this way comes. It just really imprinted on me in a powerful way for, for a number of reasons. I don't know. But maybe we'll talk about some of them as we go. But I tried to read it again a number of times and could never get through it, actually. And I was afraid that it was one of those things that had just been so potent that it was just like I had drank it to the last drop and there was nothing left of it. Whatever magic it had was the specific magic of reading it when I was 13 and not knowing anything about it. And I really could tried a couple times, maybe when I was 18, 20, 25, could not get into it. So I was kind of, I think I was the one that suggested we do it for the bookening because I really wanted to take on the challenge of trying it again, something that had been so influential or powerful in my childhood. But I really thought it probably wouldn't hold up and that it would probably just seem really purple, really overwrought, really silly, and just not have any of the old magic. And um, I guess we'll talk about that. So let's talk about something wicked this way comes. Let's do it. So I thought what we'd do is we'd mix it up a little bit. Guys, today you want to mix it up? Or 666 it up? I'd mix it up, sure. <laughs> okay, you don't want to 666 it up? No. Yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> I think that's a wise choice. Let's talk about style first. What do you guys say? Or dial, as I like to call it. Dial not in the terms of the phone, but dial like I'm putting the word die into style to create a Halloween portmanteau. I got it. Um, what? I got it. <laughs> And yet I didn't hear raucous laughter, so <laughs> therefore I assumed you didn't. Let's talk about the style, guys. And usually this is the part where we'll be talking about the characters, but let's talk about the style first. Because sure. this style is rich, and it's Baroque, and it's an important part of the book, and I want to know what the heck you guys thought about it. What did you think about this style? I loved it. I think he's... You loved uh, it, really. I really did. I, uh... <laughs> What? No, I, that's actually surprising. <laughs> I mean, love is a strong word for a guy that's this over the top. Well, he. I, I'll tell you why I loved it. I really respect it when people really go for it. Swing for the fences. When they swing for the fences. And he swings for the fences and he walks. It's like the whole book, he's walking on the knife's edge. Mm -hmm. Is it going to get cheesy? And it, he pulls it off. And when somebody can pull it off... For me, when they really swing for the fences, when they're really walking right up to the edge of just being really dumb and cheesy, and they and they're not, and instead they're imaginative and they're painting rich scenes and transporting. Uh, it's just magic. It's magic. Right. It's a. It's a. It's where I feel like for it's the Twilight Zone, mm -hmm. <laughs> where science becomes art. It's the kind of thing that's really difficult to manufacture in a lab. You just have to have the right touch, and I've. I felt like this book had that touch, that little bit of magic or pixie dust all the way through. And uh, it's very clear reading this book. Like I had, I had several thoughts reading this book. First, 
First is I'm reading Nathan Alberson's DNA. Right. <laughs> Second is this is the missing link in trying to figure out who Nate Wilson is. Nate Wilson obviously loves this book. He very much mm. is like... He just has to. He has to be a huge Bradbury fan. He has mm. to be. Because you see, you know, it's hard to put your finger on, you know... Uh, this is why I, lo- I, I would say love. Because for me, I can't put my finger on exactly why. And maybe we can talk our way into some answers. Mm-hmm. But I can't put my finger on right away what it is about Bradbury that works. But but it's there. It's that je ne sais quoi. No, it's je the, ne sais quoi. <laughs> yeah, it's that, it's it's you know it's that mm. it, it, he he's got the pixie dust and it works. Mm. It works here. And I didn't feel like it worked in Fahrenheit 451. So I didn't expect it to work. I wasn't coming in like as a believer. Right. I was coming in as a as a hopeful skeptic. And I for me it really just worked. And it worked to almost the very end. <laughs> Which we'll talk, very end. We'll yeah. talk about that. Right. <laughs> he has a very theatrical style. It's a showy style. Mm-hmm. But yeah. it's not a style that's calling attention to the author. Right. It's a style that's calling attention to the story. Right. Yeah. And Which that is, is one... Maybe that's one of the differences. That yeah. I think... The only there are only a few times where you thought, oh, that's that's some you know in in the rambling speech of Charles Holloway, right, yeah. you, you got some real poetic moments and you thought, oh, this is this is really great and poetic. But it wasn't because he was trying to draw attention to himself and be writerly. It was like he was trying to have this character come alive and be really right. poetic and awesome, well, and it, it succeeded. I yeah. have a theory that most of this story is told from the voice of the poetic. Charles Holloway, mm-hmm. like when he's, this is what he would have said to himself, a lot of this sort of thing. Right. And that's well, why his speech goes so, it comes so fluidly. Yeah. And it's the longest speech that we get in the book. This is almost like him telling the story of his son. Tell me what you, um, or tell us what, tell, tell everybody what, what you told me. About Bradbury? Yeah, going back to the book. Oh, uh, well, it is interesting, and I should have mentioned this in... Uh, context i guess but um i i want to say that this is actually appears in stephen king's book dance macabre where stephen king talks about the horror genre it's a nonfiction book and stephen king wrote a letter to bradbury he has a chapter on something wicked and he uh, wrote a letter to bradbury saying that just asking him questions about it he asks him actually what the boys saw through the window <laughs> you know when they see that uh sexy thing through the window or whatever and bradbury declined to answer that question so we'll never know um yeah, i think it's it seems couple, fairly that's just People were. It's a erotic theater nuptial where nuptial bliss. Nuptial bliss. That's what I thought. Yeah. Apparently, the boys can rely on being able, or Jim can rely on being able to see on a semi regular. These people aren't very. These people need to close their blinds. Is I guess what I'm trying to say. Yep. Bradbury or King wrote. To, I don't know if this is actually where it is, but there's somewhere that Bradbury talks about the book, and he says after having written the book many years later, he was up late last night, probably at 3 a.m. in the morning. He went, he couldn't sleep. He went and he got something wicked this way, comes down and just read portions of it and suddenly burst into tears, just started crying. And he realized that he'd written his own father into the book, yeah. that it's actually a book about Ray Bradbury's father, yeah. who if he wasn't a janitor, was not anything much more estimable than a janitor, I don't think. A salesman, and, uh, I thought you salesman said. Or... His father was, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, Well, you can see that. I mean, this story is a story about a father and a son. Sure, yeah. And it's a beautiful story on that end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you have the dad who's this janitor, but he's a janitor who... I guess, what am I thinking? Oh, <laughs> Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's the brilliant janitor, the one who's actually probably should have, could have been a professor. Mm-hmm. He's always reading these books. Well, he's Nathan. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he's a brilliant janitor who yeah. is detached and feels like he can't be a good father, and then yeah. something wicked comes and 
he decides to step up and be the dad that he yeah. always should have been. And we'll talk right. more about him in a little bit, I think, but I don't want to get off of style. But I, yeah, I don't, I didn't feel like this style was very self-conscious. So a lot of postmodern writers like with David Foster Wallace or guys like that, they're very self-conscious about their style and they're very purposeful about making it that way. And I don't know how to put my finger on it or actually explain it all that well, but you know it when you read it. Yeah. It's kind of the only way to put it. When you read this, it's not self-conscious. When you read somebody like David Foster Wallace, it is. And that's why I keep thinking of Dickens. Mm -hmm. Because Dickens, and they actually have a similar tra trajectory. Early Dickens is bad. There's no doubt about it. His stories are fun, and it's very similar to Fahrenheit 451. A lot of the style in Fahrenheit 451, really bad. Mm. But the story's an interesting story right. and a lot of great mm -hmm. ideas. You get that with Dickens too, but later on, Dickens kind of fine-tunes his style, mm -hmm. and it's very theatrical and showy too, and it's always, you get these long sentences that are doing flips over each other, but it's always because he cares about his listener or his reader. And I get the sense that Ray Bradbury is the same way. He cares that his reader is engaged right. rather than he's trying to, like Hemingway, just write a story that he would want to read. I think you put your finger on it for me, actually, because I've been thinking all week about how to distinguish. But why does Bray Bradbury work? And not, I think it is a lack of self consciousness. Like Ray Bradbury seems like he just is in love with story. He's in love with words. And he's just going to tell you the best darn story he can tell you. And he's going to go way over the top. He's going to pile 4,000 metaphors on top of each other because he's just like that eager to communicate how scary it was or how beautiful it was or whatever. Bradbury's not trying really hard to be writerly. He's just like, he's just pouring out of him. He's just like, yeah. um, I don't know. I've been trying to think what a good metaphor would be for this. It's like, um, I don't know. I can't think what a good metaphor. I was trying to think of one this afternoon. It'd be like Jerry Lewis just died. <laughs> so maybe like Jerry Lewis always feels like he's really, to me, straining to be funny. Like he's trying really hard and he's not. Um, and that's bad. But then you got other guys that are just like naturally funny. And some sometimes they hit the same lows as Jerry Lewis, but it's because they're just like funny. I don't know. I could never think of a good metaphor, but. That is where... Uh... I do believe that most people can be taught to write. Mm -hmm. Most people can be taught to really appreciate. I mean, everybody can be taught to appreciate good writing. Right. But there is a certain talent that you have to have. A knack. And, and Ray Bradbury and has it. Ray Bradbury has this knack for metaphor. Um, it's unbelievable, his knack for metaphor. He just, metaphors just, every sentence has a metaphor. Every sentence has three or four metaphors. Right. Or images that are just, and some of them aren't, don't work. And sometimes just the syntax of the way he puts the words together is really, uh, yeah. one that stuck out to me that I thought I liked was, uh, what man like woman lies down in darkness and wakes up with child or something like that, which is just the beautiful way to say women get pregnant, you know? I mean, it's just the, but it's just a nice little Shakespearean rhythmic way of, you know, like Cormac McCarthy wishes he would write that sentence, you know? Yeah, but there is something to the style that's happening. And I was trying to figure out why he wrote it this way, because mm -hmm. I don't think all his books are this way, are they? Nah, he always likes to pile on the metaphors a little bit, but Is he? yeah. But are they always this, this antique? One, this sounding? one's very dense and it's a little antique sounding. Yeah, I think so. So I was one. I was just trying to figure out why. Yeah. Why so antique? Yeah. Like, I'm what not. was the point? He doesn't seem like the kind of guy that is trying on a style like you know Hemingway and uh, what's what's that book we read? By oh, uh, for whom the bell tolls. For whom the bell tolls, giving you know Spanish. The sense of, you know, Spanish in translation or something like that. Right. It doesn't seem like he's the kind of writer that would change his style up to, he's just so, sort of always Ray Bradbury. Am I wrong about that? I don't uh, know. I've never, I haven't read it. I much. would say, I don't think Brandon's necessarily wrong to say there's something a little bit Baroque about this book, but I, th I don't think, I sort of agree with everybody. Like, uh, <laughs> I think, no. 
he he always he always piles on the metaphors and he always kind of has a weird syntax that's a little bit old ish whatever you want to call it i would say yeah i mean this is i guess one way to put it is it's heavy in nouns and adjectives and mm-hmm. very sparse in anything else so the small shape stepped down from the silent world its face in shadow but its hands newborn wrinkled pink held out in raw carnival lamplight mm-hmm. i mean just that's just a random sentence i turned to and one thing that you get when you have a lot of adjectives and nouns like that is you really, it's its tiptoeing into the world of poetry as well. It's mm-hmm. just very... Tremendous opportunities for alliteration. <laughs> that- yeah, a lot of alliteration, a lot of way that words can make you feel just through sound, but mm-hmm. also then the images that like raw carnival lamplight. Like, what does that mean? But you get a sense, it gives you some sense feeling and you can almost see it, but you can even more than see it, you can feel it. Like right. it's just this raw, it's the word raw and carnival and lamplight together. It gives you this weird, ominous feeling that he's going for if you try to parse it too much it does kind of fall apart but mm-hmm. that's the whole point is you're not supposed to parse it too much you're supposed to experience it right i just tried your trick the illustrated man banged the switch a notch grinning wildly at no one yeah <laughs> see <laughs> the switch a notch yeah the switch a notch yeah yep. bang the switch a notch grinning wildly at grinning no wildly at no one mm-hmm. I and mean, even that nice. just that right there grinning wildly <laughs> at no one too it's yeah it says it's good stuff, but, but I do think there's give... a sense where if you do, it's like Dickens, if you try to pause and think too much about it, it starts to fall apart because they're not, we're going to read an author later on where if you can pause in a sentence and you can parse it and it's perfect, mm-hmm. it's always beautiful. It would be James Joyce. Right. He's a master mm-hmm. of the craft, but in some ways he's not going to be nearly as fun to read. Well, I think the, the reason I think Bradbury, I, I think you hit it on the head by comparing Bradbury to Dickens because they're both generous and if they have excesses, they're excesses of zeal and of enjoyment. Like they yeah. want to tell you this story and they want you to see it. And so they're just going to be like, it was like a, a thing. No, it was actually like another thing. No, it was a day. You know, it was just like somebody, you can imagine Ray Bradbury actually sitting in the room with you telling this story and being really excited about it. Here's the thing. Bradbury, deadly for young writers to read, young kids who are about 13. My style suffered. I can point to specific papers i can still dig them up and and tell you here's where this is the paper that i wrote right after i read some bradbury because it sucks it's just like i am straining trying to hit these high baroque notes like what bradbury hit and i just can't do it and most people can't do what bradbury i mean i almost want to say like bradbury's you shouldn't try and learn anything from ray bradbury he's almost an anomaly in his style most people should just read strunk and white and they should learn to omit needless words which ray bradbury doesn't do they should learn to keep things simple which ray bradbury really doesn't do nope. they should learn to most people are not going to be able to go this far over the top and yet still walk that tightrope and keep control and like jake said there's just a pixie dust to it we don't really i don't really know how he does it, except for that I think he's actually, like Brandon said, really just an innately talented guy. Like if he wanted to be, to mellow out and really exercise restraint, maybe people would talk about him as, like they talk about Cormac McCarthy now, or some of these guys that are the great stylists. Um, And he can do it. But yeah, exactly, because he can. There There are individual lines and moments and sections that are as great as anything anyone's ever written, but he's just so generous and so excited that he's also gonna write crap too and it's all gonna end up in there and i kind of love that about him yeah here's a passage where he's talking about mr electrico i don't think we read this did we or did we talk about mr electrico no. and his inspiration for becoming a writer nope which actually ties in directly to this because mr electrico is in this book yeah mr he went to a circus at age five or something yeah. like that 
He said, Mr. Electrico was a fantastic creator of marvels. That's a simple sentence. Mm -hmm. He sat in his electric chair every night and was electrocuted in front of all the people, young and old, of Waukegan, Illinois. So there, Mm -hmm. he can be simple. When the electricity surged through his body, he raised a sword and knighted all the kids sitting in the front row below his platform. I had been to see Mr. Electrico the night before. When he reached me, he pointed his sword at my head and touched my brow. The electricity rushed down the sword inside my skull, made my hair stand up and sparks fly out of my ears. He then shouted at me, live forever. I thought that was a wonderful idea. How did you do it? So, I mean, yeah. he's not always this way. No. And there's whole sections of this book. I mean, it's easiest to remember the parts where it's just like piling those metaphors on top of each other. Some of the Charles, uh, what's his name? The dad speeches, speeches. are, are yeah. really over the top. But there is poise. There is control. A lot of it's invisible. Any kid that tries to rip it off is just going to rip off the faults they're just going to rip off the over the topness without understanding that there's a lot of there's a lot of there's a good solid skeleton there's a good there's a lot of good meat and potatoes writing that's going on underneath the surface of this of this baroque over the top style i don't know it's hard to talk about yeah you more just kind of admire it yeah because it works and he's i think a lot of it has to do with his commitment to it a lot of the problem is people either only try to imitate and so they do it poorly I did it with Dickens when I was young. Sure. Or they get afraid of what they're trying to do, and so then they pull back to try and explain things. Yeah, you. you can't. And then that just gets cheap. You can't write Ray Bradbury ironically. You can't write it with anything. The, the, what makes Bradbury Ray Bradbury work is that he's earnest. He's basically humorless, yeah. and he's just committed to i mean he's humorless in the sense that you know he's not an ironist he's not reflecting on what he's doing he's not looking at himself and second guessing himself he's just like this is the story and he's it's, a believer right yeah here's the story steinbeck's similar too. yeah yeah steinbeck's yeah. actually a great touch point for this steinbeck's very similar in that steinbeck sometimes sucks but like i think we said about steinbeck he clearly was capable of writing as good as Hemingway if you wanted to. <laughs> you can clearly divide most of the authors that we've read into about into two camps and one storytellers and the other stylist. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're the kind of guys that are always going to fall on the side of the storytellers. Right. That's yeah. just part of our makeup, what we appreciate, what we love. And it's the guys that can marry mm-hmm. their story with style that really, really soar. I think it's a part of maturing too because as a child you love the story. Yeah. And he he knows that a good story when it's told well is better than anything else. And also the style and the story are easy to sort of academically separate, but in this case it's it's really one and the same like you couldn't yeah. you couldn't tell certain kinds of stories with Bradbury's style. Yeah. I mean his style is also very similar to like Melville. Mhm. As dense and weird as Moby Dick is, there's a lot of similarities to the to them. He loved Melville and wrote the screenplay for the um, Gregory Peck version of uh, the Melville movie, or of uh, Moby Dick, I believe. Yeah, so I agree. You do. You have storyteller, and then you have it's sort of the academic writer. It's the difference between also, like, different poets as well, you see it. Um, like, T.S. Eliot was very academic. But he doesn't move you in the way that, like, Yeats can. Right. Yeats wasn't very academic, but Yeats wrote some really weirdly beautiful poetry. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so the... the the style pretty much you guys just you want to give it an a you want to give you think that i think ray bradbury can fail i think he's one of those guys that's always going to swing for the fences and he's either generally going to knock it out of the park or yeah. you know hit a foul ball hit a couple yeah fouls. I, I didn't i didn't ever find in in this book myself sort of stepping back and chuckling or laughing the way that i did even in east of eden as much as i like that book you know we got we made some good hay with uh, the thighs of women lost their lost flesh, their flesh yeah. or whatever, whatever. Yeah, that, that whole big opening yeah. <laughs> you know it's a part part two or three or whatever that was yeah, yeah, just I like part two yeah <laughs> i didn't ever really feel that 
way in this. And maybe if I went back and read it again, not in the clutches of story grip, that it would be different. But I did, you know, I, I read the second half in one sitting and... So. Yeah, I should have said in my baggage, I read the whole thing, I think, in a night or something when I was a kid, and that was definitely the way to do it. But I will say, when I went back to it those couple times and I couldn't get through it, it was the style that stopped me. I think I, at a certain point, I became, I got into Hemingway and stuff like that, and I became a little bit snooty about that sort of thing. And certainly, I got into Strunk and White and said, you know, omit needless words, and then I'd try to read it, Bradbury to just be like, what are all these adjectives and metaphors doing here? Ugh. That was one of the reasons I could never sort of re-enter into it. And then this time, you know, I was just like, you know what? actually these are really beautiful pictures that he's painting for the most part and maybe it's a little over the top sometimes but who cares well, it is but it's fine i didn't have any parts i laughed at there were some parts where i had to stop and try to figure out what he was saying <laughs> and i couldn't so i just moved on right <laughs> so that's probably the the biggest criticism of it that i could come up with is that sometimes he gets so caught up in it that it just doesn't make any sense really weird word order inversion yeah, thing that you've got to like wait a minute, what? How am I supposed to read this again? Yeah. Well, it'll just be things like even Mr. Dark comes into the library and there's all this huge description of his tattoos and it's like, I'm pretty sure he's not stripped from the waist down right now. Are you just telling me that even though I couldn't be there and see it, he had his tattoos were all screaming in the agony of the damned right now, I guess. It's just some kind of... Are they like all somehow rushing to his hands? Yeah, I don't know. It's, it's just stuff like that, that where you're you just kind of confused but then you go with it because he just carries you forward with his eagerness and it's eerie and it's yeah but sometimes the images they just really strike home like one that i remember and winter lived in the witch yeah yeah and winter stuck out for me but then also when the glass is breaking at the end Mm -hmm. and he said it was breaking like and it was like snow i mean if you've ever seen glass break it does it kind of becomes white right and it's just it was like that one little perfect image for me well and he describes a thousand old men you know it's like there's thousands of charles holloway's all you know, in his old form, you know, his old form just falling in the glass. And yeah, it's just, it's beautiful little stuff like that. I also think he just, when I read the little preface thing, that's like, there be summer months and there be winter months. I was a little bit dubious. Oh boy, Radbury, really. But then the lightning rod salesman shows up and he immediately sets this Baroque tone and just set in the lightning rod salesman is like, my name's Fury and I'm here to put the lightning rod on your house to keep the storms away. And I'm going to prophesy. And it immediately just gets big and theatrical. And it's like, you have a well, choice to either accept it. And if you accept it, then you'll be there for the ride through the whole book. Or you can say, this is the dumbest book ever and throw it across the room and be done with it. But it's like... Even the names of the of the boys William, in Mr. Fury work to right. really set that up to you get nightshade and holloway and we're talking about halloween and and then the mr. bad Fury, guy's name is mr then, dark of and then all mr. things dark mm. and then we get dark and cougars thing you know it, yeah it's all doing work to create that feel that atmosphere that, so it's a fable it's a tall tale yeah. it's a it's, it's a little slice of americana at its most sort of legendary it's yep. it's big it's yeah it's an excess of it comes through a generosity of spirit like Dickens, I think. It's just... It's a guy and Shakespeare, too. And like Shakespeare, yeah. There's a sort of organic quality to these guys. They're just not as into weeding as right. Melville is. That's fine. Thomas and Melville Will. hides the whole, what, iceberg? He just shows you the tip. Mm-hmm. But he forgets that the rest of the iceberg is kind of beautiful, too. Right. So. <laughs> Hemingway, you mean. Hemingway, that's yes. what I meant. Yeah. What did, who did I say? You said Melville. 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 Like, Melville, yeah. Is that what he's doing when he gives <laughs> us chapters on whale blubber? Put, and... put Hemingway back into that. <laughs> yeah, I'll put Hemingway. You mean Hemingway. Say Hemingway five times real yeah, quick. Hemingway. Hemingway. 
Hemingway. Oh, he just appeared. Um, it's our Halloween hey episode. Let's go kill some bulls together. Yeah. Beetlejuice. <laughs> hey, Callie, I like your Hemingway impression. Hey, guys. Uh, hey, guys. Let's go kill some bulls together. <laughs> yeah, you probably talk like that, Brought to you today by Gorehorn Media, the creepiest of all places. You can listen to our other podcasts, The Sounds of Insanity. I guess that's the Halloween version of Sounds of Sanity. I don't know. You guys got a better. I got a better. Okay. Uh, or uh, the world we. What's the Halloween version of the world we made? Unmade. <laughs> <laughs> The underworld we made. Oh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> the underworld we made. So, uh, anyway, thanks for listening to Booketing. It was written and produced by Nathan Alverson. It was performed or per, yeah, by uh, Jake Mentzkiller and Brandon Chastfiend. And, uh, yeah, check us out on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks for listening, everybody. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween.